I like how you said that this is a synthetic dollar and not a stable coin. It is quite hard, I think, to control, like beyond basically just putting all the information in front of people to say, please read them and, and get into this. Yeah, people don't read. The open interest basically moved between 1.3 to 1.5x, um, and then BTC like double that, so call it like uh, six, six-ish on top of that. Sorry, maybe we've taken for granted that people here know what the hell we're talking about at all. The launch of a new protocol called Athena lit the cryptoverse on fire this week, offering over 27% potential annual yields that immediately triggered a bunch of unfair comparisons with other platforms that exploded in previous cycles and that we all have PTSD from in the past. I spoke today with Guy Young, the CEO of Athena, and we talked about exactly what the risks are, how transparent they're being about those risks, how you can earn this yield, how the product works, and what's going on with DeFi, whether it's ready for the spotlight in this cycle. Incredible conversation you don't want to miss. That's dope. That's dope. So, Athena has taken the crypto world by absolute storm this week. Uh, I know that you guys have been talking about it for quite a while. It wasn't brand new, but it seems to have really caught the attention of the community. Can you just give me the very brief, quick and dirty recap of exactly what it is? Then we can dig more into the details and and why it's needed. Yeah, sure. So I think um, the background and the inspiration behind the idea actually came from an article that Arthur Hayes put out in March of last year. So he described his vision for a synthetic dollar where you're essentially long Bitcoin on one side and then short the PEP on the other. And those two things um, coming together essentially net each other off and create a synthetic dollar position. I read his piece and, and sort of resigned from my job, quite inspired by his idea and, and decided to start building Athena. Um, but we had sort of two key changes behind um, Arthur's core um, vision. So the first was actually just thinking about what is the collateral asset that you, you want to use uh, within that uh, cash and carry. So um, we thought it was more interesting to start with stake teeth because you obviously have a positive carry now to being long stake ETH, uh, which you don't have with Bitcoin, which I think um, not only makes the product sort of easier to sort of scale in the beginning because you have um, a yield, uh, which is obviously something that people uh, sort of seek within crypto. Uh, but then secondly, it also adds just a margin of safety to sort of cover for the downside, which I'm more than happy to, to sort of jump into around potential negative funding scenarios. Um, the second change that we made to Arthur's idea was he was quite explicit around you you need them to leverage uh, centralized liquidity in order to actually scale this into the billions. And um, I think after FTX, I was personally just not happy uh, taking users' assets and basically putting them on a centralized exchange and like having it within a black box. And uh, we saw some interesting developments in market structure where you now have custodians which allow you to hold uh, the assets outside of exchanges and then still use those assets to margin, margin the hedge on the other side. So we thought that, that was pretty an interesting middle ground, basically between um, the trade-off that you're making between decentralization and then accessing centralized liquidity, where you can still try and reduce the counterparty exposure to some of these exchanges. So that's a very basic idea. You've got um, a crypto asset on one side, you're hedging out the exposure on the other, and that's sort of uh, typically paying you two forms of yield. You've got the stake ETH return on one side, and then usually uh, through the cycle, you're getting paid to, to take the other side of the shorts. It's not always the case. It can change through time. It's definitely volatile in terms of funding rates. They're always updating every eight hours. 
Um, but that's sort of uh, the basic product construct. Crypto investors in the United States face some major challenges. One of them is that there's almost no way to get exposure to the asset class inside of your traditional investment vehicles. The other thing is the taxes. They are absolutely atrocious. What if I told you there was a way to solve both of these problems? Well, there is. And it's with a self-directed IRA from iTrust Capital. Guys, not only can you open a new self-directed IRA and fund it with the limits each year, but you can actually convert over from your 401k, your Roth IRA, any other IRA that you already have, and you can do that tax-free, just transferring over the balance, and then you can go to cash, buy as much Bitcoin as you want, and not pay taxes when you sell it. You absolutely have to try this if you are in the United States. Use the link down below. It's bit.ly slash itrust scott. That's bit.ly slash itrust scott. You have to try this now. So uh, there's a few natural questions that every person's going to ask you and already has, right? The cash and carry trade is extremely popular. It's been around for a long time. It was made, I think, very popular in the crypto space last year. Right when there was obvious, or I would say the last cycle, not last year, the last cycle when everything was in contango, you could obviously you know buy spot, short the short the futures, and and make that yield. But that trade went horribly wrong for a lot of people, right? A lot of that, to be fair, was happening on GBTC with the premium, and and which went to a discount. But what unseen risks could there be if the yields or the the rates change dramatically, and all of a sudden it's not going to plan? Yeah, I just want to be clear um, around this point up front that there are definitely risks that exist with this product that that don't exist with normal um, sort of fiat stablecoins. We're trying to move away from like the the framing of the product as a stablecoin. Uh, so we've called it a synthetic dollar within our documents um, on the application itself when you log in and uh, accept the terms and conditions. It makes it quite clear that the risks are very different sitting behind this. There are a bunch of different financial risks, which I think look quite different to stable, uh, normal stable coins, but I think uh, there are a few that actually look quite similar. So one is we're obviously using staked ETH as part of the backing. So it's not the full backing. You've got like uh, normal raw ETH that's in there as well. Uh, but we have seen periods where staked ETH and ETH prices do diverge, but it's only crystallized as, as an actual impairment uh, to the position if everyone has withdrawn at the exact same time, is that you obviously have an ability now to withdraw from ETH to ETH. Uh, where before, when you did see deep discounts right. within Steve, uh, that was partly driven by the fact that you couldn't get your hands on the underlying ETH. And then the other one that people focus in on quite a bit are the funding rates. Where, negative funding, said, right? Negative funding yeah. rates. Yeah. So what happens if the funding rates go negative for any extended period of time? Yeah. So uh, the first piece that you've got there is sort of margin of safety is uh, the staked ETH yields, which can actually cover for that. So you can sort of think about it as when the times are good and you're capturing some of that. Uh, spread that I described, you're actually just adding it to the insurance fund to make the product more safe and secure, where if you do get a rainy uh, a rainy day that you need to sort of tap into it, uh, that is there for negative funding. I think the thing that people actually miss quite a bit around the, the negative funding point is um, it really is quite actually core to the mechanism design. So um, if you think about it, it's quite a strange user behavior. If you see the rate on the product is decreasing or going to zero or negative, in the process of doing so, you're going to redeem from Athena, and we need to lift the shorts that we have on the exchanges in order to, to meet that redemption. And in the process of doing so, you are essentially lifting short interest within the market and allowing funding to mean revert then back above zero. The funding really didn't actually stay persistently negative at all, like even with three hours blowing up, Luna blowing up, it's like a few days to a week. 
and yeah. like minus three, minus five percent funding. And so I think you can sort of get your arms around what you've seen historically, not to say that that's always going to continue into the future. Obviously, we're just presenting what did happen historically and Athena can actually impact the future in material ways when it does uh, ever go to an extremely low rate, actually users stepping out of the product, uh, make it a self-correcting mechanism rather than one that sort of feeds on itself. Speaking more simply, so you would have to cover shorts, which means effectively putting in buy orders, which lifts the price. Exactly, yeah. And then you you reduce the pressure that's sort of sitting there and, and keeping funding low, basically. So it's the reverse. It's the reverse of what's happened in historical liquidation cascades, where it's generally a bunch of longs getting liquidated, which turn into short orders, which push, uh, which turn into sell orders, which push price down, and you get that like kind of endless uh, washing machine. Yeah, exactly. That's one other thing. It, it's usually when like the market's crashing to the downside, right? It's like when there's a fifty percent crash, whatever it is. Um, that's when things are like really dislocating, when it's like prices of perhaps first spot or whatever dislocation is occurring. Uh, and you've got to remember that we're obviously always positioned on the short side. So we're never there like taking a long on the other side when things are like really breaking down. You're actually always on the right side of that breakdown, if that makes sense. Yeah, it, it makes sense. And obviously the other pe- thing that's triggered people tremendously, whether fairly or unfairly, is that it's being reported that you can earn up to 27%. Yield, right? 27.6% annual yield, I think is what people saw. I think in this market, when you say anything's north of three or 5%, people panic because of what we saw in the CFI collapse and obviously the Luna collapse in the past. I think it's clear it's not always a 27.6% yield, correct? I mean, that's in ideal market conditions, I would imagine. But how is it generated at that high of a level? Yeah, I mean, like 100%, that's uh, shifting like every eight hours, it's basically moving up and down. Um, you can sort of think about the breakdown there as you've got the stake teeth returns that call it three to four percent, and then funding has been pushing pretty um, aggressively positive, basically as people I think are speculating coming into a potential ETH ETFs this year, um, and so that that really did push up the funding rate on the other side, which is how you get to that twenty seven. If you're familiar with um, Dai and SDI, they have SDI, which is capturing like the yield, and then Dai, which is like the stable you know of account. It means that like the yield is only going into SDI, or in our case, SUSDE, but it's actually being produced on, on the entire portfolio. So if you only have 50% of people staking, for example, it's going to have that make that yield um, optically higher, if that makes sense. Yeah, you, really, you've got the two components of yields that are coming together. As you say, it's completely volatile. It changes through time. And I think the most important piece is that it's a market set interest rate. This is not someone coming in and saying this is 20% fixed. It right. is just the market rate. And um, we've got like dashboards. You can go look at all the third party websites where it's funding right now. And you can see it's pretty hot. Right. Offering a fixed yield like the C5 platforms did is what caused them to go further down the risk curve and take like take these tremendous, terrible bets because they didn't want to reduce the yield that was being offered to their customers that had been promised. You're basically saying this is an open market and the yield is what the yield is based on what the market's giving, correct? Yeah, exactly right. Um, and you can you can really just think about um, the supply of USD actually. It's more of like a balancing item between interest rates that are sitting on this cash and carry and interest rates in DeFi or the rest of the market. So if you can borrow dollars from DeFi at 5% and put it in here at whatever the number is, 15, 20, 25, uh, obviously varies through time, that's going to force those two interest rates to converge, right? Because the supply of USD is going to go up, you're going to push down the cash and carry, and then the borrow rates within DeFi or other bits of the market are going to push up. So you can actually conceptualize uh, Athena as basically just a vehicle for interest rate arbitrage between 
CFI, DeFi, and TradFi. And USD is just a balancing item, which makes those, like, all those things sort of converge in, in a single vehicle. So obviously, you anticipate that people will do exactly that. They'll go into DeFi, they'll borrow because they can get a higher yield with you. Are there any significant counterparty risks there with the other DeFi platforms where we've obviously seen exploits or hacks or you know, bridging issues, any of those things, or is that effectively their problem and shouldn't translate to you? Obviously, like we saw with Curve, for example, a guy takes this massive loan, the price of Curve gets pushed down, and it could have effectively crashed the entire DeFi market because of one guy's loan across the multiple platforms. Maybe that's a bit hyperbolic, but you get the idea. Like if somebody took a massive loan somewhere in DeFi, used it to arbitrage in Athena, and something goes wrong on that other platform, is there a risk there? Yeah, I think um, the point you're making is like, I think the basic example here is you could bring ETH to MakerDAO, for example, or Spark, and then borrow DAI and, and put it into, into Athena. You can borrow DAI at like 6% now, so there's like an interesting carry, and, and I can see people sort of doing that on chain. Um, the risk is obviously if you get liquidated on MakerDAO, um, just like anyone would doing that uh, with some other leverage activity. So there might be an issue on that platform, but it doesn't sort of affect the core, I guess, like protocol of Athena. I think where that could potentially happen is if you take the staked USD version that we have, and then you start to use that as collateral elsewhere. So whether it's on an Aave, you want to go loop it up, you want to use it as PAP collateral, whatever it is. Um, it is interesting because uh, obviously now having an interest rate differential between SUSD and borrow costs and DeFi mean that that levered loop or using this collateral is actually quite compelling. But then you obviously start to run the risk that people lever up too much there and, and start to um, get liquidated there, which obviously has border issues. So um, I think there is a potential for that if people use SUSD more broadly within DeFi in, in a dangerous way. Uh, but we've sort of capped things out for the last day or so uh, just to have like a bit of a breather because um, there is a lot of what we're doing, which is net new. And uh, we just want to make sure it's done the right way. Well, you don't have the same hubris that Doquan did. <laughs> Right. I mean, you guys, to, to be fair, like he went out there and anyone who questioned him, he said that you were stupid, you were an idiot, and this was perfect. And he was empowered by, you know, these great VCs who told him that his shit didn't stink. You guys are literally saying, hey, man, there's a lot of risk here and we're going to test it. Right. And I'm assuming you learned a lot from seeing his approach and seeing the approach of others before who didn't really question their brilliance or question the uh, you know effectiveness of their platform. It seems like you guys are trying to scale into this and actually test for black swans and, and answer the questions of the community. Yeah, I mean, as early as today, um, there were obviously quite a bit of pushback on Twitter. We set up a Q&A on the Athena account, which is there, it's been recorded and, and everyone can go listen to it. I jumped on for an hour and 15 minutes and just spoke to people directly around their concerns and, and how we sort of think about them. So. Um, I couldn't agree more. I think one of the biggest issues we saw last cycle was like an extreme arrogance from a lot of people to basically just engage with like basic diligence and questions. So it might seem that there was like quite a bit of pushback in terms of what we're doing. Um, and I think that that's actually the right thing. Um, we should be questioning when you when you see stuff that like what Athena is doing. It is the right response to question it. Um, I think obviously some of that goes too far when you're just making like surface level comparisons to Luna without sort of like digging into any of the documentation or trying to understand why, why it is different. Um, but yeah, I think uh, we have no issues with, with people raising like valid questions. And personally, I'd much rather, if someone does think something is fragile or there's an issue, I would I, I have like no pride in basically adjusting or changing things now 
rather than like causing an issue that's bigger further down the road. So I think that's just my personal perspective on things. Yeah, crypto Twitter is like a free focus group. As long as you can uh, tolerate the anger, it's, you know, you really are getting effectively beta testing on the idea from the community writ large, which I think is a really interesting approach. I, I like how you said that there's a synthetic dollar and not a stable coin. I have to assume that that implies that it won't always be exactly pegged to a dollar. I mean, it seems structurally how this is built that you're going to float around the dollar, but probably not always be exactly pegged. Yeah, if I'm being honest, I think that's actually an impossibly high standard for anyone to hold themselves to. So USDC debugged to 90 cents. Tether's done that in the past, and these are like staples which are like 10 times bigger. Orders of magnitude larger than, than we are. Um, I think it's actually an impossible standard for anyone to say that we're always going to be pegged to a dollar because it is sort of the, the market that's like ultimately deciding that, and it does panic at sometimes. The numbers I saw yesterday was doing around 60 million of volume on Uniswap on like a $2 million pool. And the, the standard deviation around the peg was like roughly uh, 20 basis points around the peg. Um, so there's a lot of these on-chain stables which have traded down to 99 cents and have sat there for like months. Um, you can sort of put it side by side with USD because of the way that the arbitrage mechanism works. I think it does keep a slightly tighter peg, but obviously no one can um, make any guarantees that it's always going to uh, be like that. Yeah. Could the market ever move so fast against you that you're unable to actually manage the positions that would keep everything in balance? You know, one of these massive flushes to the downside or something where you see Bitcoin, well, I guess ETH, you know, drop 10, 20% in a matter of minutes. It's happened in this market before. It's got to be then very difficult to find liquidity to cover those shorts that are you're using to hedge and potentially the costs associated. So, what does that look like in the worst case scenario with one of these just massive liquidation events? Yeah, I think we're actually positioned on the right side of the market. So because we're short, yeah. when you see the massive liquidations, uh, the perps tend to like trade at a discount to spot. So the last one of these that we saw, um, there were a few contracts like on Deribit and um, Bybit that traded like four or five percent out of line with with Binance spot. Um, and so if someone actually redeems from the protocol at the very bottom, you've actually captured like more PNL than you thought you. Would by being delta neutral because you you hedged at like 100 and made 105 and then someone said i want my money back and you closed out at the bottom um this is like a very theoretical scenario like it doesn't usually happen um your ability to actually close out at that dislocation um so i would just say that like we're on the right side of the breakdowns usually and it's like more of a PL opportunity rather than um something that like threatens the the solvency um i would just um uh, overlay that though with if you do see an ADL event with exchanges, so like we think that we've got PNL from other people who are on the long side, but the entire insurance fund of the exchange cannot cover like the ADL um, scenario uh, on those contracts. That is a that is a situation where there might be a bit of a shortfall. But we haven't seen any ADLs on any exchange in the last um, four or five years for for BTC and ETH. You obviously talked about risk disclosure. So again, I think one of the biggest problems in the last market was that people for some reason thought what they were doing was risk-free, right? And even the SEC or the most aggressive regulator, I think, would say that their job is to disclose the risks and then allow you to decide whether you want to take that risk or not. So you are saying that there's a risk associated with earning this yield, unlike platforms in the past. The question then becomes, do you think that the people who are doing this, I have to imagine that this is pretty savvy, advanced crypto native people who even understand how to do all of this. So do you think that you have a savvy, intelligent enough user, at least initially, that they're going to fully understand those risks? Or is there 
sort of a chance that this could have a, you know, tail down to your average retail person who just buys the token, like to those who bought Luna, and it ends up, you know, getting massively liquidated? Well, I would say that actually the composition of uh, people that are holding USD definitely does look different to, to other holders. So um, I know that there's like institutions who are holding 20, 30 million dollar tickets of it just by themselves as like single holders. And so there's quite a large like sort of um, institutional um, ownership of it. And that's obviously just people that are a bit more sophisticated. I think the context here is that they've obviously done these trades their entire life and they sort of understand the risks. And then the bit that's interesting to them is that a cash and carry, anyone can do that. Um, you can you can do that right now as like an individual. But what is actually interesting is your ability to tokenize that and then compose it with the rest of DeFi and do all of those interesting things that I was describing earlier. Um, and so I think unlocking that for some of those larger institutional players is actually something that's quite compelling to them and they really understand the product. We do hope that like the materials that we put out do educate users that it does look different. And I hope that some of the engagement that you've seen on Twitter and stuff, it is quite hard, I think, to control, like beyond basically just putting all the information in front of people to say, please read them and, and get into this. If we just look at the composition at the moment, it definitely does look more overweight sort of large holders who I think do understand the product. Yeah, people don't read. <laughs> the, the average person's just going to say everybody's doing it right and but that you can't control obviously like you said you can only put out so much information and control you can't control what people are going to actually do with it so usde now you have this new stable coin in the market effectively a new synthetic dollar you're going to be able to do everything with it that you can do with other stable coins do you foresee having usde pairs on centralized exchanges for example yeah, I think one thing that looks quite unique about us is we're the first like protocol that um, every centralized exchange in the space is invested into. So sometimes you see them investing into individual projects, but like this is the first time they've come together to support one. And as part of that, we do have like a roadmap and a vision to actually try and produce a product that's useful for them. One thing that looks actually quite unique about USD and, and Athena is we're the first protocol that every exchange within the space is invested into together. So you've seen them sometimes invest into individual projects, uh, but we're the first where they've come together to, to support the vision of one. Um, I think part of that and part of our own vision around how we actually distribute the product is, I don't know how many users do you think there are uh, within DeFi, maybe like 10 to 20,000, uh, but you look at like a Coinbase or a Binance with 100 to 200 million users, that's actually sort of the target that you need to go to to get mass distribution. And so we sort of look at the success that Tether had in the past. And really, they attained what I would consider is like the holy grail, which is they are actually money on these exchanges and used as money. The mode that they built there is um, uh, really hard to actually unseat in terms of liquidity sitting on key pairs um, and, and just the network effect they built there. I think what is interesting about um, USD for these exchanges is it's a lot more profitable for them to actually push USD than Tether because we bring flows into their liquid staking tokens, we create trading fees on the exchange, and then we can share some of that yield with um, exchanges to distribute the product as well, where Tether doesn't do that. Um, and so it's actually really a cool uh, piece of the way that we see the distribution roadmap working for us, which is instead of trying to find 100 million users yourself, actually just produce a product that the exchanges are incentivized to actually push for you to all of their users on the other side. So. How big could this become and is there a size at which it becomes a systemic risk? It's a very difficult question to answer on the size just because um, the derivative market obviously moves in terms of like open interest relative to market caps, all those different things. I think one just observation from last cycle was that for a $1 change in market cap for BTC and ETH, the open interest basically moved between 1.3 to 1.5x. The derivative market grows quicker than the market cap itself. 
Um, so it really is a question of like, where do you see ETH and BTC in a year or two from now? Is it like 5K ETH, 10K ETH, whatever it is? Um, I think if we're looking at the market as it exists right now, uh, with ETH alone, uh, like roughly two, two, two-ish, two to three billion dollars, um, I think you'd start to hit like real capacity constraints. BTC like double that, so call it like uh, six, six-ish on top of that. So I think if the market didn't go like a ton from where it is right now, if you spread this product across both ETH and BTC, like 10-ish would be, um, it would start to, to reach constraints. But who, who knows if um, BTC is at 100K and ETH is at, at, at 10K, um, those numbers obviously change pretty dramatically. Sorry, maybe we've taken for granted that people here know what the hell we're talking about at all. Uh, can you just, just describe the cash and carry trade? We didn't do it, but there's going to be a lot of listeners who probably don't even understand what that means. And since that's sort of at the core of what you're building, I think it's really important. Yeah, so um, the cash and carry at a very basic level is you're taking uh, a spot of one asset. This could be in crypto or in normal markets, so whether it's like commodities or uh, fixed income, whatever it is. Uh, you're taking the spot um, spot asset and then using that uh, to, to hedge the future. Here, the simple example would be you put down $100 of Bitcoin, you short uh, the inverse Bitcoin perpetual, and you do it at the same notional size so that a change in uh, the price of Bitcoin uh, has those two positions netting each other off, essentially. When there's a difference in the price of the future and the underlying spot, uh, that basis can basically be expressed um, as an interest rate um, on the cash and carry. So you effectively earn free yield by by having both positions? Yeah. Uh, I personally wouldn't say free, uh, but like... Uh, <laughs> you earn a yield. Free was the wrong word for that. You're, you're absolutely paying for that yield. And, yeah. and I, I hinted at it before, but can you sort of explain where that became problematic in the last market for people who are kind of doing it wrong or who are trying to chase yield, I think would be the fair way to say, because, you know, if they needed a certain amount of yield and that didn't get there, they took on greater risk, I think, to to service that. Yeah, I mean, the, the famous one is obviously the GBTC saga that you saw. I think a basic misunderstanding there is that that is not an arbitrage. The people that were doing that were actually expressing a very explicit directional view on GPTC as like an asset, which is um, this is trading at a premium and it is going to continue trading at a premium until I get out, uh, which is not an arbitrage by like any definition. So, and they had and they had a six month lockup, I believe, right? So you're taking the, the time-based risk as well because you can't actually control that position until you're unlocked. Yeah, correct. As like a construct, it's a similar idea where you are like providing capital into GBTC and trying to hedge uh, BTC uh, futures or perhaps or whatever on the other side. But there was a very core assumption there that the that the premium would continue to persist. That obviously didn't happen. Yeah, I mean, we saw GBTC go as low as a fifty percent discount for those who weren't uh, following along. So that's what arguably contributed to destroying Three Arrows and destroying BlockFi and destroying a number of these platforms, right? Fun times, yeah. Yeah, well, hopefully that won't happen again. So why do you see a need for this in the market? Or is it more not a need, but that there's a place for it, there's a use for it, and so it should exist? A lot of people obviously pushed back on the idea of synthetic dollars or why do it, right? I mean, you can do a lot of things with stable coins. I understand that question, by the way. I'm just giving you the, uh, the opportunity to tell people because a lot of people will still be confused and say, I'm just going to use Tether or right, they not understand why why this. Yeah. So I think there's actually two pieces here. You've got the synthetic dollar, which we think it is actually just fundamentally important to create money within crypto, which is not tethered to the existing banking system. I think um, we've got so used to basically USDC and USDT 
plugged into every single DeFi application uh, used without like throughout the system. I, I think what we're doing in DeFi is completely pointless if the most important instrument is completely centralized in all these applications. And I think we sort of lost sight of that vision a little bit, which is it, it could be one of the most important things, basically producing a self-sufficient form of money in, in the form of a dollar. And I think that this is the way that you can do it at size and scale. Um, and that was the original vision of Arthur, which is this synthetic dollar idea. It has nothing to do with the yield or anything like that. It was, this is the most important thing for us to solve as a space, which is, can we create um, our own form of a dollar within crypto uh, that can scale? Um, I think the second piece is around when you do put that together and you have the byproduct of the two forms of yield that I described, we're coining it as the internet bond, which is um, basically taking the only two forms of scalable crypto native yield into a single instrument. Um, and I think that there is a need because like the whole of DeFi is basically running on like RWA yields of like 5%. And again, like what are we doing here in DeFi when uh, like the core If you can just get is, that in a T-bill, right. Yeah, if you can get it in a T-bill, then why does DeFi exist, right? Yeah, and it's like, well, this is like uniquely leveraging like the tools and, and sort of systems that we have within crypto to produce something that we think is like more interesting and has, um, you know, based on like the last couple of years of data, a higher return than, than using T-bills. So we think that this is like a more interesting crypto asset to build upon within DeFi. I think we've seen it quite clearly actually that there's a lot of capital that's actually like quite starved for yield on chain, where the only option is like Steve at three and a half, not that interesting. And then RWA is at five. And I think it's part of why, I mean, we're four days into the launch at $400 million. I think that there is product market fit for producing like an above market uh, return. I don't want to go back to like the Lunar and Anchor like example too much because I obviously do think what we're doing is completely and fundamentally different. But I think one observation I did have around Anchor was that no matter how much risk was sitting within Anchor and the Lunar system, because they could beat like dollar returns in the rest of the market by like 500 basis points, the demand for that wasn't like a billion dollars. It was $20 billion, regardless of all of the risk. And so we obviously think what we're doing is like orders of magnitude different in terms of the risk. And it's producing a, a sizable pickup uh, at the moment. And obviously this can change to stuff that you're seeing in the market. And actually, so I really believe that like the constraint here is not on the demand side. I think that there is multi-billions of demand for an above market return on dollars. I think it's more of a supply side, which is, is the crypto derivative market able to sort of absorb those flows without being distorted uh, too much? I often ask people more generally, you know, how many people do you think is using this? When do we get to mainstream adoption? All these sort of general vanilla questions. I, I love that you said, how many people do we have in DeFi? Maybe 10,000, 20,000? Because if you ask a lot of people, they'll be like, there's 5 million people using this. And I laugh, right? This is still an exceptionally small market. Do you think that this is the cycle where DeFi actually starts to gain traffic and we start to see meaningful adoption, millions of people actually using this? It was, you know, it was literally, we were talking about all this yield and the things we can do with it, but it was originally promised as just a parallel financial system for people who wanted to opt out or were unbanked, et cetera, right? Where are those people? Yeah, no, I, I definitely don't think this is the cycle. I think, um, <clears throat> I've been personally quite underwhelmed with like the innovation that we've seen within DeFi for like for the last two or three years. I think the last time I was like really excited by what I saw going on was like DeFi summer in 2020. And since then it's been like small iterations on, on the same sort of primitive. I think like fundamentally it's still too unsafe. It's too unclear in terms of like KYC, AML, how that's all treated. Um, I think that there's just too many completely unsolved 
problems with DeFi at the moment, and uh, like speaking honestly, just not producing fundamentally like useful products. Right? We um, we've created like an amazing casino uh, that everyone can come um, and gamble. But like beyond that, I do think that that's sort of like really the use case for um, on-chain finance at the moment. Um, except for like a very small sub subset of things. Like I think stable coins are basically one thing that are basically like a, a non-speculative, fundamentally useful use case that we found. But otherwise, like all of the finance within DeFi is just speculation or providing financial infrastructure for people who own hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars of crypto. Like, yes, you can go get a loan, but most people don't um, uh, have enough ETH uh, where that's like a, a fundamentally useful thing for them to do in their lives. So, I don't think it happens this cycle, but I, I do sort of have a bit of a question of like, do we deserve this next cycle type thing in terms of really have, have we sort of um, developed new and interesting use cases for people to come uh, and and sort of like increase adoption at size. And I'm slightly less sure on that piece than I am around like the spot in place. I love that you're building something in DeFi, but have such a realistic view because that shares my exact cynicism and skepticism when people ask me the same question. I mean, that would, it's, I was like listening to myself give the same answer, which is amazing. The bullish side of that, if you're glass half full, obviously, is that we're still really early. And I think all of this will develop. I have to ask you, it kind of mentioned it with KYC AML. Are you fearful at all of regulatory pushback against this? Obviously, we've had this massive spotlight on the industry and the people who are regulating and legislating don't understand the differences, right? You could explain this to them until you're blue in the face but they're just going to see yield Ponzi something, right? That's what they're, that's what you're going to hear from the Elizabeth Warrens of, and Gary Gensler's of the world. So I'm assuming you're going to block people in certain jurisdictions because you have to, but is there any regulatory fear? Um, yeah, I wouldn't say fear. I'd just say um, we've taken like all the steps that we've been um, advised that we should. So as you said, um, users from the US and a bunch of different jurisdictions can't access the app, um, but we've actually taken a bit of a, a further step on that where the stable asset and then the yield component have been clearly delineated. So uh, you need to go and stake to actually collect um, that yield that I was describing. We have a lot more control around that staking contract where if we're told and we're running um, sort of TRM checks on the actual staking contract itself, if we have uh, people um, who shouldn't be coming in there from restricted jurisdictions or with uh, suspicious funds, like we have an ability to basically freeze it within the staking contract. And so we retain sort of that option there as a team to try and be responsive if there is sort of a change um, in, in sort of posture towards what we are doing. Um, I would say it looks fundamentally different because uh, the collateral that's sitting behind this is obviously state ETH and um, in most places that hasn't been classified as a security and all those different things. Um, but yeah, I think our position is um, we're doing everything in a very open and transparent way. If someone uh, thinks has a difference in opinion in the way that we approach that, we set things up to be maximally flexible to be able to actually just respond um, to the way that people uh, suggest that we do do it. So, um, yeah, I think that's our approach. That makes sense. I mean, if somebody wanted to use this right now, you said you guys just launched a few days ago, got a couple of minutes left. Can you walk through someone through the steps of going to actually check this out and test it themselves? Yeah, I think there's a few like ref codes uh, flying around Twitter. If, if you've just gone to www.athena.fi, you'll arrive at like a landing page and you can put in uh, the ref code to get through to the app. Um, and then it's really like the app has been simplified to such an extent that all you're doing is swapping USDT, USDC, other stables into USD. And all our front end is basically doing is sending it to like Uniswap or a curve pool. Um, and then you can take that asset and, and go and stake it or, or provide liquidity elsewhere. 
And basically all of the complication there has been abstracted into the background where the arbitrage mechanism and everything uh, is basically being conducted with market makers against our contract where they're bringing in different state products and stuff like that. And it's essentially the only thing that um, retail users are interacting with on the front end, like primarily is is just swapping into like a curve pool or a Uniswap pool uh, for the assets. Perfect. Where can people follow you uh, after this conversation and keep up with what you guys are doing since we're still here in the early days? Um, my Twitter is extremely difficult to spell out, so it's leptocratic, but maybe we can just drop it in, in the show notes. We'll drop um, it in the, in the description, yeah. Awesome. Um, and then Athena is at Athena underscore labs. And uh, yeah, love to love to have you on if you're interested in the product. And I'll just reinforce again, it looks very different from uh, normal stable products. Uh, the risks are very different, and we do actually really ask that you sort of spend time like an adult to actually review that before you come and use the product. Uh, asking people in crypto to behave like adults when making financial decisions is a huge ask, but I'm going to hope that they do it in this case, Ben. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. I look forward to catching up and following up uh, down the road. I uh, hope that this is uh, tremendously successful. Cheers, man. Appreciate it. Thanks, buddy. That's dope.